the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Welcome in. I'm Rob Black. I've been in financial radio for 20 plus years, financial television for 20 plus years. I wake up every day on East Coast time. It was a little bit easier when I lived on the East Coast. But I look at the markets and I try to share some information with you that I've seen along the way. I've learned from some of the best in the industry and I've made mistakes. I try to process those in real time, if that makes any sense. Um, with that out there, you got to find what works for you on some levels. I'm not chickening out when I say that, but you may have grown up in a household where, I don't know, you believed in God or maybe you didn't believe in God, or maybe you believed in capitalism, or maybe you believed in socialism. Maybe you believed in real estate is the way to get rich or stock market is the way to get wealthy. It's so interesting because I just caught myself editing myself of don't use the term rich because that could have negative connotations for people who are said not rich. One of the things that I want to do when I get on air with you, and I do two types of shows. One is strategic and one is more of a bullet shot into today. The economy, the finance, the stock market, the story stocks, the sectors that are working. And one is more, oh, you have a wife and kids and a job, you probably don't need to know everything. I don't know which one I would rather be. But one of the things I have to throw out there is in 20 years is you do see things change dramatically. For instance, the United States and China. China surpassed the United States as the largest recipient of foreign direct investment during the COVID era. People started looking around the world and said, where do I want to put my money? Whether it be investment dollars, research dollars, infrastructure dollars, and China took the United States. To me, that's like a four by four 100 relay where a baton was passed. And if you look at the history of capitalism, the United States was in the lead for a long time. The United States won races for a long time and we're still winning said races. But down the road, China looks like more of a competitor. I've done a lot of work on 5G and you know who's better at 5G than the United States? China. You know what 5G is that the United States don't really have? Telco equipment, and China has Huawei. We had Lucent, and we kind of tore it apart. We had Nortel, and we kind of tore it apart. 
we were left to say like companies like Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei, you do the telecom infrastructure because we don't want to. We want to do the Wi-Fi network infrastructure. That could be a game changer. And again, keep in mind, like part of this quote unquote sprint race in my 25 years of doing this, in my investment lifetime, I've seen Germany be a number two, number three type of economy. Japan be a number two, number three. Now I'm seeing number one, number two is the US and China. And maybe the single most important event was the Summer Olympics in China, where China's like, we need to ramp up to show the world, A, you can spend your tourist dollars here, and B, you can invest here. And I think it was a great investment. The problem with China is that they still sometimes act like China, a bunch of communists who take power from their people. If you happen to be a rich billionaire, you're on the government's list. And if you're on the government's list, you piss them off. They take your land, they take your real estate. So suddenly you start seeing Chinese buy real estate in the Bay Area, which was a phenomenon that hit me in a funny way maybe 15 years ago, where I was like, are you kidding? There's a realtor here who could speak Mandarin, and she rents out a bus that on the weekend she takes 20 Chinese uh, diplomats, uh, power brokers, players, I don't know. She takes them around town and shows them houses in Palo Alto and they buy them on the spot with cash. Yeah. So you start putting all the pieces together and you can kind of see China is a world power and it kind of all started happening with the Olympics, in my opinion. Again, it still worries me that they've got that communist angle to them on occasion when it's convenient. Chinese economy brought in more foreign direct investment than any other country during the COVID years, knocking the United States from its perch. I completely expect, and I hate to say this out loud, when I was in high school, I had three choices of a language, I believe, French, Spanish, and Latin. I don't believe anyone was teaching German, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't understand why, why Chinese isn't taught, like mandatory. Spanish is great because we've got our Mexican neighbors to the south and it's lovely to go on vacation and kind of feel like you're not getting fleeced because you don't know the language. But it's also kind of stressful when you start thinking about the world power being China and you kind of want to hear what they're saying about you in board meetings as well as the Chinese hotel or as the Mexican hotelier. Chinese economy brought in more money. And if there's one more maximum that I could teach you, follow the money. I am not practicing 100% of what I preach there out of like, what about that communist angle? In 2019, the United States received 251 billion in inflows and China received 140 billion. And one year later, China beat the United States. 163 billion to 134 billion. Developed countries were hit hardest. Investments in the United States fell 49%. That's maybe one of the reasons we got caught. But what I want to leave you with is the truth is the truth. What once was black and white 15, 20, 25 years ago has changed. It's a little bit more gray. As an investor, whether it be in stocks or real estate, you have to be open-minded. Understanding that, yeah, you're trying to get enough wealth to live till the day you die. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Find me at robblackshow.com.
Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. So if I had unlimited money, I would probably retire immediately. Maybe keep doing a podcast about unlimited money. I'd go see this band in concert. My goal is to use part of my retirement to see live music. You know what stinks about that is, and this is very, very true. I don't want to be the old guy hanging out with young people where all the young people are like, man, I hope I'm at home with my wife when I'm 50 or 60, like that guy there. Why is he standing in front of the soundboard? <laughs> like, I don't want to be that guy. And yet that's always been my dream to like more live music. But you don't age well into it when music is a live person, uh, young person's game. What would you do with unlimited money? It's a good question. This first segment of the show today, we talked about money does buy you happiness. To me, it would buy me the autonomy to go to a concert every single night if I wanted to. Potentially get on a plane and follow a band. If I were to follow a band, I would not follow the Grateful Dead. Nothing against you Deadhead fans, but I would have followed someone great like the Rolling Stones. I don't get Deadheads. And again, that's the beauty of investing. That's the beauty of America. We don't have to get each other. And as an investor, you could say, Rob, my daddy, he bought real estate. Look, I've got a grandparent that bought a farm. It turned out good. I'm not against real estate. I just, when it comes to rock, scissors, paper, I prefer stocks over real estate. Because history shows stocks beat the hell out of real estate. What history doesn't show that people tend to glom onto is that real estate is an incredibly leveraged liability that can and will get you in trouble at times. And when you need money, you learn that it's really, really illiquid. So if money can buy you happiness or autonomy to do whatever you want, and the stock market's expensive, and real estate is a monthly commitment slash liability until it's not, when people say real estate goes up all the time, there's a truth to that. Stocks go up too all the time, seven out of 10 years. Uh, when you go, it doesn't cost a lot of money to buy real estate. Well, once you buy 100 shares of stocks, you have 100 shares and you never have to buy it again. Next month, if you lose your job, you, you don't have to sell it. You don't have to buy it. But with a mortgage, you have to pay it. And those utilities, they are not getting cheaper. Are you with me or are you against me? You must choose a side. So should you invest in stocks or real estate? And the answer is both. If it were a pure raw black kind of angle, I would say you invest in REITs, publicly traded stocks that invest in real estate, whether it be malls or auto dealerships or movie theaters or office space or residential apartments. REITs are what are called real estate investment trust. And I have uh, a producer of the show. He does not own his home. I'm like, you can own $100 of real estate if you want to. You could be a, a real estate owner. Because a lot of people psychologically go, I really want to own real estate, but I don't own real estate. I'm just a renter. I'm just a bill. 
on Capitol Hill. Just so sad, right? But you could actually own real estate and you could actually own corporations. You own 100 shares of Apple, you're an owner. You own 100 shares of a real estate investment trust, you own real estate. If you have a mortgage, bank owns real estate. So let's start with that conventional wisdom and, and let's just try to make ourselves just a little bit smarter. Should you own stocks or real estate? The answer is both. I'll give you the cheat sheet. You don't need to look under the car for a bomb. You don't need to look under the hood to see if the wires have been cut. You can actually own both. Deciding on whether to invest in stocks or real estate puts an honest period of time for you to reflect upon yourself on risk tolerance and lifestyle preferences. Both investment strategies have their advantages and disadvantages. Understanding the difference between the two will help you become a better forward-looking financial person. It makes sense to invest in both. Invest in real estate means you acquire a physical piece of property, regardless of the type of real estate investments you make. Most investors make returns on monthly rental income and or when they sell the property for hopefully appreciated value or a capital gain. On the other hand, when you buy stock, you purchase a piece of a company. As the company's value grows, your stock value grows with it. You can also receive income in the form of dividends from a company. Keep in mind, some companies pay fat dividends like AT&T at 6 or 7% because they're an old company. Versus at companies like Apple, who just started making the iPhone 15 years ago, roughly. So they're a relatively young company. They pay a small dividend. But every time someone goes out and buys an iPhone, if you own shares of Apple, you get a piece of that iPhone they just bought. That's beauty. I mentioned, but I didn't hit very hard, what are called real estate investment trusts. They are individual companies that own income-producing assets like commercial real estate, office complexes retail spaces, hotels, apartments. The REITs, the history of REITs, and forgive me if this gets too boiled down, but essentially in the 1960s, Congress was made up of all white people in America because through the last 50, 60 years, we've been like, well, that's the first African-American who voted to Congress or the Senate or the House of Representatives. Oh, that's the first Muslim. That's the first woman. It was a pretty white institution back in the 60s. Now, they all robbled together. Congress, the House of Reps, senators got together and said, how can we, we're wealthy. How can we protect our wealth and keep our wealth? Well, let's pass a law that lets us buy real estate without buying a whole 30-year mortgage because a 30-year mortgage is kind of dangerous. If you own a restaurant right now and it's got a 30-year mortgage on it, you just been shut down for a year during the COVID or 2006, 2008 during the housing crisis, like people stopped coming out as much. People started eating at home, or maybe there was a trend on digital delivery where restaurants kind of lost their fuego. So you kind of get the idea that a real mortgage is more problematic than owning a piece of a company that owns real mortgages. A lot of REITs are publicly traded. I never, ever, ever recommend private REITs. There was a man on radio many years ago, Ray Lucia, who pushed private REITs. The thing he didn't tell you is that you get a big fat kickback when you push a private rate, 9 to 10%. And he may have been right, and he may have been impassioned by what he was doing for you, getting you into private real estate. 
But any time the bank's not involved or Wall Street's not involved, the commissions are ridiculous. So private REITs and hard asset money are hard money where you're promised 7% returns, like a REIT, but it's not a REIT. Those tend to be the riskiest investments out there because they're private. And you're, you're banking on someone having good sense to use your money wisely with real estate, but also good sense not to blow it on themselves. So I like REITs. I like stocks. I like bonds. I probably dislike actually physically owning rental property more often than not. I've had some bad tenants. My best tenants tend to be myself. At one point in time, I invested in an office building. Guess where I worked out of? That office building. So I paid myself rent. Stocks, you have to go through a broker typically, whether it be a Vanguard or Schwab, an Ameritrade, a Fidelity. You got to go through a middleman. And in 40 years ago, it was dangerous because that middleman would make $200, $300 a transaction and you didn't know if they really liked you or if they were trying to look for a transaction. So kind of know that going in that every industry has people who will poach you a little bit and people who are, I'm not going to say charlatans, but people who put their own financial interest first and they don't even know it sometimes. I've got a friend who sells insurance for a living and I'm like, I would never ever buy your product. I can't say that out loud because he really believes in his product, but I would never ever. So let's talk about some of the differences again between stocks and real estate. Stocks are liquid. With real estate, your money can be tied up for many, 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 many years. And when you need it, there it may be a situation where everyone needs money. Let's say we hit a recession in the next couple of years and anyone who bought a second home, they're like, um, I've lost my job and now I have two homes to pay for and I need to cut one of them. So you thought you had a big gain in that real estate, but suddenly when six, seven, eight months of real estate all are hitting at the same time, you're like, ooh, not good. And then suddenly it takes two, three years to sell your property and you needed the money immediately because you lost your job on an immediacy kind of level. Stocks have a proven track record of success. If you look at the S&P 500 for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, you go, it's really worked well over those that period of time. With real estate, every market's going to be different. So I don't know if you like track record or if you like opportunity. I get it. With stocks, you can earn big fat dividends. With real estate, you can earn income from someone paying for it. A little bit different but I'm with it. With stocks, it's really easy to diversify. With real estate, it's much more difficult to diversify. If I wanted to buy rental properties, I kind of want them to be in my backyard so I can check on them. And then suddenly I have a lot of real estate in California that's exposed to an earthquake. Whereas if I have stocks, I have global businesses around the world. Stocks are probably a little bit more short-term volatile because we publish the price every day at four o'clock Eastern. And the next morning when the market opens at 9.30, it has another price. If your home had a price in the front yard every day, you might go, ooh, that's kind of crazy. They're taxed differently. Tax Stocks are taxed more efficiently than real estate. That's a big can of worms. And taxes differ like golden clay with people. I should hit on that one at a future time. You can find me online at robblackshow.com. Talking all things financial. 
helping you create some wealth. Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. So in the first segment, I talked about does money buy you happiness? And there's some studies that say it buys you autonomy. And I kind of like thinking about that because for me, I know really well that Social Security doesn't cover you in retirement. It doesn't make your golden years more golden. It, it, it's a patch to put food in your belly and not much more. We have a society that ages. As we age, we work from age 20 to 60, but we used to die at 65. Then it was 70, 75, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81. So as we started living longer, we needed to save more. That's my relationship with money is that I want it to last till the day I die and maybe a little bit longer. Everyone has a different relationship with it. You need to really think about yours. Are you a spender or are you a saver? You can start there. Or your parents' spenders or saver if you want to start slightly before you. What do you think you learned from your mom? What do you think you learned from your father? How about your rich uncle or your broke uncle? One of the ways that we could start creating wealth, and when I was 18, I did not know if I was going to have a six-figure job, a five-figure job, or how long I was going to be stuck at twenty to 30000 I didn't know. So I started looking at if I can save a little bit of money here, how can I grow it? How can I make my money make money? And the stock market was the obvious one. Now, here's the problem with the stock market. Stock market is always at or near its all-time high. It hits all-time highs seven out of 10 years. So every time we look at it psychologically, we go, well, that looks expensive. I sure would like to buy that half off or 40% off, or 30% off, or 20%, i.e. what is known as a bear market. But the stock market's always going to be expensive, so you have to have a time frame of three years. When I go back three years ago, I wish I would have invested. to get the idea? In 2015, if I went back three years, I wish I had invested. In 2012, if I went back three years, I wish I had invested. It doesn't always quite work like that, but over time, it does. And it's almost a red pill, blue pill, Matrix dilemma. Which one are you going to take? This one you go back to your life as it was. This one you'll see the world the way it's meant to be seen. Stock market, I think, is a reflection of capitalism. And yes, it does get way ahead of itself at times. Let's say the stock market is made up of 10 sectors in the S&P 500. You can name a couple of them in your head, I'm sure. Retail, transports, financials, tech, materials, defense. Aerospace, like you can, you can kind of get most of them, right? Sometimes those sectors are going to be really, really overpriced, and sometimes they're going to be underpriced. There's a phrase that pays called there's a bull market somewhere. There's always a bull market somewhere. And every single year we go into a new year, we, we reset the clock and we go, I wonder where the value is this year. I wonder if what worked last year will work this year. I wonder if I should initiate some taxes and try to shift things around, take a capital gain here, put it into a capital loss, 
maybe I could use those two to offset each other with with the IRS. But every year we go into it, is the stock market too expensive? And the answer is probably. And what stinks is you can't predict when it's going to pull back. And every now and then there's one person who does. Elaine Garzarelli in 1999. November, December of 1999. She started that firebell alarm. The, the, the clock. Ding, 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 fire. I got to be careful because I don't want to cause a riot. And then be arrested for causing a riot. Hmm, who does that sound like? The stock market is at or near the most expensive level. And there was a woman once named Elaine Garzarelli who, who correctly said, tech stocks look too expensive, tech stocks look too expensive, tech stocks look too expensive. This was over 20 years ago, and she was right. Now, what's funny about that is people forget in 1999 and 1998 and 1997, she said, tech stocks look too expensive, tech stocks look too expensive. And we were just like, ah, oh, it's a little boy who called Wolf. And we didn't take her for serious. And then when she was smoking right, we thought she was a goddess, a goddess of t market timing. We thought after 2001, what does she think about 2001? What does she think about 2002? And she was never right again. She's a footnote in history that she got that market timing call once. That's not totally true. She had a lovely career, but as far as financial media goes, she got it right once. So the stock market is at or near the most expensive levels ever. Now we're starting to look at, well, bond yields are so cheap, you can't make money there, so might as well put it in the stock market. Huh, I don't know about that. I could tell you that you're not going to beat inflation with bonds, therefore maybe you roll the dice and go with stocks. And stocks, some of them differ like gold and clay. That to divide is to take away. If you pay a dividend and a company like Apple, who I own, pays a teeny tiny little dividend and they have a ton of cash coming in, I go, well, maybe one day more of that cash will go to their dividend or maybe one day more of that cash will go to buybacks or maybe one day more of that cash will go to research and development. But having that free cash flow right now is kind of like saying, yeah, you can be overpriced in the short term, and we're going to look the other way. Tesla's a great example of that. That we're looking away because they generate good cash flow for the first time ever. And we look at their business model and go, okay, they've cleared the hurdle of, of getting that first profitability. Now it should be all about cash flow for a while, and then profits and profitability versus sales. And you'll get into different metrics as a company ages. But right now, the stock market is at or near its most expensive levels ever by most measures. And that's not a new phrase for me. I say that on a regular basis doing this show. Now, maybe I should be screaming, alarm, alarm. But I'm still mostly fully invested. I think I have a little bit more cash than typically historically. I think historically, I kind of keep it around 1% to 2%, 1% to 3% cash. Now I'm somewhere like three to five, three to four percent. It's not a large jump. Exponentially, it looks like it on paper. But when markets are hitting all-time highs and you're in earnings season, after earnings season, there sometimes are things called letdowns. Every four, 
uh, quarters every 90 days. Wall Street gets together and powwows and says, ah, let's see if we're too expensive or not. And, and it's time to tell the truth. Who's going to stand up and have the real earnings? Who's going to stand up and have the free cash flow? And who's going to stand up and miss earnings? So there's a research group called Ned Davis. Ned Davis Research says it's hard to deny on the whole stocks are rich relative to past earnings and forecasts. So you know that. Fewer than a third of companies in the S&P 500 are under the historical 15 PE. So you know that it's expensive. The best thing to do is instead of saying, I'm betting on one year only, learn to scale in maybe over a three-year period, maybe over a three-month period, maybe over a three-quarter period. Stocks are always going to look expensive is a lesson that I've learned, and I'm sharing that with you. I'm Rob Black. Go long, be patient. Find me at robblackshow.com. Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. New Focus on Wealth with Rob Black. Talking about all things financial and creating wealth. Job loss can be financially disastrous. There's no doubt about it. That's an obvious one, right? But how about some financial disasters that are not as obvious? Divorce. Bad investment after bad investment after bad investment. Maybe you buy a used car and turns out that it had a little bit more problems than you thought. How about being emotionally flawed? This one hits me pretty well. Or sometimes when I'm on a diet, I really want sugar. And sometimes when I'm on a budget, I really want to blow the budget because emotionally I'm flawed. Being a victim of fraud, being a victim of great expectations and underperformance. It happens to all of us. I remember coming out of college going, how am I going to make enough money to find love, settle down, convince a woman that I'm marrying material, convince a woman that I'm fatherly material? What sort of financial shape do I need to get into? And one of the, not mistakes that I made, because I never signed up, but have we all been to one of those multi-level marketing meetings in our lifetime where someone dragged us in? Or maybe a boss said, you know, I really think this would be something you would take to. I think that might have happened to me, that it was kind of a, a boss kind of scenario. And all they wanted me to do was have a network of friends and family and sell a lot of crap to them. Of which I do not think I'm a natural crap salesperson. So it was a little bit more difficult for me. One of the things you can do to make up for disastrous investments, divorces, job loss, bad investment decisions, bad purchases, fraud, things that you just don't see coming like roofs uh, being blown off, is you can save like a pessimist, invest like an optimist. If there's 20 things that define you as an investor, that would not be a bad one to start with. Um, you could have a save like a pessimist, invest like an optimist. You could have 20 things written down, plug it like maybe eyesight above your monitor. 
And whenever you go to do a little bit of research on stocks that you want to buy or indexes or your total net worth, see who you are. I don't think that's a bad thing. On my 20 lists of mantras or memes or however you want to say it, maybe I would have something that said something like Warren Buffett is an investor god. Maybe I'd have something that says save like a pessimist, invest like an optimist. Uh, buy term life and invest the rest. If you just have 20 little things that you can practice, you're going to be okay. You're going to be a better investor. You're going to make fewer mistakes. You're going to make up for divorces and job losses and string of natural uh, bad investments here and there. That, ha that happened. They happened to us all. I had a female friend that really, really, really needed to borrow $2,000 when her mom died. I lent her the money and I never saw it back. Bad investment, bad loan, friendship ruined. We all go through that. In fact, that's a, f a year of a Roth IRA contribution or a, f a 401k. Like that's a good amount of money, especially when you were young. No one is as impressed with your with your possessions as much as you are. I, I can attest to that is very true because I care nothing about your car. I've got a friend who's got a, not a Lamborghini, a McClellan, I believe. $225,000 sports car that he lost his job three months after. And that baby is hanging heavy around his neck. And I'm not impressed. He could have funded his whole retirement right there. Sat back and chilled. But nope. Had to have, had to have. So I saw an interesting study out of Wharton over the weekend. It's pretty fascinating because you know how I'm telling you, write down things that you can believe in. Little memes, little thoughts, little cadences, little something that reminds you of who you are as an investor, where you come from. I got no place left to go, Richard Gere. People actually are happier when they make more money. So says a Wharton study. You know that crap of money can't buy you happiness? Well, apparently it can. Because money makes the world go around. Conventional wisdom suggests that money cannot buy you happiness. Apparently that's wrong. A well-known research from 2010 had shown that people tend to feel happier the more money they make, only up to a point of about $75,000. And then a follow-up sequel to that study came out this weekend. And people's well-being rises with the amount of money they make, even beyond $75,000. For me... I'm not saying money buys happiness, but for me, money buys autonomy, where I don't have to work for you and you and you. When I started in television 20 plus years ago, I got called into the office after a couple of weeks. Just wanted to give me a, here's an update on how you're doing. And I had a boss tell me, hey, that goatee, you got to shave because people think you're the devil. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? People think I'm the devil? Like, do we think there's a manifestation of the devil walking around on earth right now? Or is it more of a literary convenience? Is it more of a figure of speech? Is it more of a religious idea to live your life by? But apparently the devil works at Channel 4 Cron and had to shave his goatee. And because I was autonomous, because I had enough money, I was able to say, I make more money than you and you and you put together. I'm pretty sure my audience doesn't think I'm the devil. I'm pretty sure that they're not like, ooh, better change the channel or the devil's going to get me.
One, two, three, the devil's after me. Four, five, six, he's always throwing sticks. Seven, eight, nine, he lives on channel nine. Hallelujah, hallelujah today. So money buys autonomy and it gives you choices and lets you live the way you want to live, in my opinion. I think that's kind of going to change over the years and I think it does has changed. At one point in time, money bought me a girlfriend. Money bought me, <laughs> not like a prostitute. Shut up. Money bought me like opportunity to like go out and shine versus stay at home and play the Sega Genesis. So researchers said 33,391 people who were employed use a smartphone app that prompted them to check in their emotions throughout the day. The app asked them to rank, how do you feel right now? Overall, how satisfied are you with your life? The findings based on seven years of data collection said that it um, the relationship with money holds true regardless of the time period. Data shows that all forms of well-being continue to rise with income and doesn't plateau at $75,000 a year. At an individual level, it suggests that as people advance in their careers and their incomes rise, it has the potential to make their life genuinely better. Then once the ceiling they hit at 75000 which was what was part of the first study, now, again, when I was 18, my first thought was I'd like to have a million dollars so I could live off $40,000 a year of income till the day I die. I was thinking about me. And then I thought, started thinking bigger, like spouse. And then I started thinking bigger, like one kid, two kids. And the numbers went up. So when I had 75000 and I was living by myself with a cat, I was good. But then I started thinking about, I don't want to work till the day I die, so I need a million. And then I was like, hey, I want to take care of my spouse because society has put that pressure on me of men take care of women. Whether it's right or wrong, I think it's silly. I like being taken care of on occasion. Uh, a girl once got me flowers when I had a job promotion or a job, uh, something positive happened. And I was so in love with her. I was like, no one's ever gotten me flowers. I kind of guess I, I know how that feels to get flowers out of nowhere. Anyway, does money buy happiness for you? What would you buy with unlimited money? Does it buy happiness for you? You need to understand your relationship with money. I'm Rob Black. Find me at robblackshow.com.